It was the fall of 1923. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had enrolled at Tübingen University to begin his ministerial his theological studies. And in the spring of the following year, he and his brother Klaus went and visited Rome. Dietrich knew it would probably be extremely enjoyable and educational, but he had no idea that it would be important to his future. Because it was in Rome that for the first time, Dietrich thought seriously about the question that would dominate his thinking the rest of his life. And that question was, what is the church? And when Bonhoeffer returned from Rome, he enrolled at Berlin University, which was at that time one of the most prestigious places in the world to study theological studies. He earned his Ph.D., at the staggeringly young age of 21. In his postgraduate work, the question he asked and answered on high theological and academic levels over and over was the same one that had entered his mind on that Palm Sunday in Rome. What is the church? What is it that you and I are doing as the church? And I firmly believe that our task as we minister to one another is, as Bonhoeffer wrote, to trouble the comfortable and to comfort the troubled. And I take that to mean that we should definitely be mourning with those who mourn. At times, just being there when our brothers and sisters are in trouble. I'm reminded of the book of Job. How about the middle of the book, Job finally says to the three friends, Do you remember when you first got here? How you sat with me for seven days and seven nights and didn't open your mouth. I wish we were back there. Because once they did start opening their mouths, they gave some of those old familiar platitudes that people still use today. God does not bring trouble on us. God does not bring death. We have an ad adversary. The devil. And Jesus himself said, the devil is the ruler of this world. We need to be comforting people who have had loss. And, and many of you have been so comforting to us as we've dealt with loss upon loss. Uh, Thursday morning, after a great nephew dying, after my aunt dying, Thursday morning we found out that our great-grandson passed away at birth. And then Friday morning I get a call and one of my mentors, someone who's been very meaningful to me, who one of the first ones to call me and congratulate me and tell me he would be there for me as I took upon myself the role of the manager of Prairie States Camp, Bob Phillips, 
suffered a severe stroke, uh, had to have surgery. I don't know the prognosis yet, won't know till tomorrow. Loss upon loss. But I also believe that it means that you and I need to be the first to challenge, the first to disturb the roots, as Bonhoeffer did, which led to his execution. Our task is to intentionally trouble even our Christian family if we see that someone has settled in and not seeking growth. Someone is satisfied with the status quo. Or maybe even more so, to speak out. To speak out in troubling ways if there is a belief or a way of life that's being taught that is not consistent with God's Word. And the health of the church, the body, is being threatened. This morning... We're dealing with a subject that I've spoken about very little in my four and a half years here. It's a tough subject. It's a potentially troublesome subject. I guess that's why I like the words of a man by the name of Charles Cranfield, a New Testament scholar who died in 2015, just months before he was going to turn 100. He once wrote, the church's need of money is a matter which is difficult to handle with graciousness, sensitiveness, and dignity. But that's exactly what I want to do today. Stewardship. Stewardship is actually a subject that Jesus addressed frequently. For example, many will remember the object lesson that he gave his disciples recorded in Mark 12 where we're told that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, opposite the great big vat that was used for the collection of their tithes and their offerings. And he watched them. And he pointed out to his disciples that the rich people who were pouring money into those vats didn't give as much as the widow who gave her two copper coins. Because they gave out of their abundance. She gave out of money that was needed to be lived on. Now let me assure you. Before we go any further, there, there's more to the topic than just the amount of money a person might be giving. So let me begin by saying that there are three foundational truths that are included in the concept of stewardship. First, the word itself implies that someone's the owner. To this, Jesus reminded his followers that God is not only the creator and the sustainer, but he's the owner of all life. Centuries earlier, the psalmist had declared, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell within. Psalm 24. In the second place, since God is the owner of all things, then we as humans are trusted uh, of what we are, what we have, and what we will become. We're trustees. We're stewards. And that's a term that denotes responsibility. And the third principle involves that issue of responsibility. 
There is a necessity as stewards that we must handle correctly. And we will have to give an account of the use with which we make of all that's been entrusted to us. So again, in the teachings of Jesus, Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable regarding the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And he says a parable uh, that is a valid comparison between the kingdom and a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. The servants, which is us, had been entrusted with possessions and they were responsible for how they made use of what they were given. And this is just one of the many teachings regarding our responsibility to be good stewards. I've chosen as a text this morning a passage from Paul's second letter to the Christians at Corinth. People that he refers to as the saints. That's right. That's who we are. You are the saints at First Christian Church Brook. It's a word that means the ones who are set apart, the holy ones. It's not a word reserved for only people who are on a statue somewhere who have the name saint. We are all, Paul over and over in his letters, begins the letters by addressing the Christians in the church as the saints. And the passage has to do with a collection that Paul is gathering for the Christians down in Jerusalem. Now it's just a small part of the larger section. Uh, it actually begins chapter 8 verse 1 and goes all the way through verse 15 of chapter 9. But it deals with various issues related to administration, collection, uh, as well as the distribution of, of that collection. What I believe important for us to see this morning is that in the verses immediately preceding our text, Paul refers to the collection and the giving of the Christians as the ministry for the saints. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now it is superfluous, it's unnecessary, I shouldn't even have to be going into the fact, I don't have to write to you about the ministry for the saints. He's referring to our offerings as a way that we minister. In fact, if you'll go back later uh, and, and read that first five verses, he also calls it a fellowship. The word koinonia that we looked at a few weeks ago. In fact, it's the very first time that I have found anywhere that koinonia is used for monetary collections. The giving that they're doing, Paul says, is both a ministry and a deep, sincere fellowship with the recipients of their gifts. And in verse 5, he goes on to say, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as willing, a willing gift, not an exaction. And the word he uses there, uh, it's Greek lesson time. The word he uses there is the word eulogion, which is the word for blessing. For blessing. 
the blessing that you have promised, the willing blessing that you are giving on behalf of the others. Now, one last thing before we get into our text. And don't worry, I only have two points from my sermon this morning. So my introduction is longer than my message. But scripturally speaking, stewardship involves two categories. The tithes and the offerings. One biblical scholar has expressed the issue clearly. By writing, in the Bible, the tithe is not the goal. It's the beginning. The Old Testament speaks of tithes and offerings. New Testament stewardship includes all that we have and all that we are. And the tithe is a very simple concept. The tithe is 10%. So if your check is $543, you move the decimal point over one place and your tithe is $54.30. And, listen to me, not giving the tithe is robbing God. That's the baseline. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will anyone rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings. Now I know that opinions on whether Christians should practice tithing are divided. And I'll be more than glad to go deeper into the topic if you like, but the biblical evidence suggests that the practice was continued in the early church, but our giving must not become legalistic. So let me suggest that as Christians, and as one writer wisely put it, our attitude toward tithing ought to be shaped by the Old Testament, but defined by Jesus' prescriptions and Paul's exhortations. So, let me get into my text for today. Uh, By the way, your insert has a line there that I put there for a very important, very intentional reason. The benefits that you receive from giving can actually and certainly be understood in the words of Paul as the harvest of your righteousness. Are you living righteously? You can expect a harvest based on your giving and the blessings that you will receive. So let's look at the two points that I have for today. The first is the nature of our giving. The nature of our giving. And it comes in the first two verses. The point is this, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. I'm so glad that I have never had to chide any church that I've worked with for being dilatory, for being uh, negligent in their giving. The most that I've ever had to do is to simply point out our budget and point out what our offerings have been. And then simply ask a question. 
Can you manage a household if your income is that much lower than what your budgeted needs are? That's the most I've ever had to do. I've always wondered, however, since there's something else being mentioned here, how, how do you go about motivating individuals in the church to be free and unselfish in their giving? How do you develop in individuals such a happy spirit as these verses point out regarding giving? Because if you stop to think about it, the joy of giving is the reward. Christmas time. I am notorious for sitting there with all the presents that they've given to me, sitting there and not opening any of them while I watch in excitement and anticipation as they open their presents. The joy of giving something that I know is wanted and watching the excitement. The result of having been blessed by giving. And church leaders throughout the ages have faced the same challenge that confronted Paul. And in our text for today, Paul presents some biblical principles that are not only directed toward the church as a whole, but to individuals whose contributions will make up the church's gift. And the first thing he does is appeal to a proverb to make the point that bountiful giving leads to bountiful rewards. Stingy giving leads to stingy rewards. Uh, what did Jesus say? Where a person's heart is, that's where their money will be also, where their investment will be. Have you ever wondered why it's easy for people to slip away from the church? I can tell you. Kay can tell you. Jesse can tell you since she has helped. Our offering, even here at First Christian Church, and I've watched this in every ministry that I've been a part of, our offering varies very little with who's here and who's not here. Because if you're not investing, you don't feel the strong urge to be there and be a part of something. Paul draws his well-known analogy from farming. Those who sow sparingly get a spare harvest. And I think it's interesting that the word translated again bountifully, Paul goes back right again to a form of that word. This time, it is a prepositional phrase. They receive upon blessing, upon blessing. It's repeated in the Greek. Bountiful. In other words, it's upon the principle of blessing that they have, in fact, chosen to give a lot. So what's it mean? Well, if we apply the analogy to giving, it means that plentiful giving will result in plentiful harvest. 
But what kind of harvest is reaped by generosity? I can assure you this. Paul does not pass this principle off as a shrewd investment strategy on how to great to reap greater material blessings. Even though I know a whole lot of television evangelists preach that on a daily basis. If one gives in hope of attaining greater material blessing, then you're probably not going to experience the spiritual blessing, but you will experience spiritual poverty. Paul makes that clear in what follows, that God rewards generosity with abundance, but He does it so that they can give even more. And second, Paul cites Scripture to encourage giving generously and freely because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, has anybody gone back to find out what Paul was quoting when he said that? You're going to have a hard time finding it. Because guess what? Paul didn't use the Masoretic text. Paul used what was called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 22 verse 8 does say God loves a cheerful giver. But you won't find it in our English translations. It's in there between our verses 8 and 9 in the English. But we could go back to the Old Testament we could go back to Exodus where God is saying, remind them that I don't want them to give reluctantly. It was in the gifts for the temple. He said, if they're just giving reluctantly, tell them to keep it. I want giving that the nature of it is cheerful. Cheerful and abundant. I think what he's doing, what Paul is doing, I think he's providing an approach so that if those Christians at Corinth comply, they're going to do it out of obedience to the Lord, not out of obedience to Paul. And that's why he doesn't want an external compulsion. He wants that internal need, that internal necessity. I can again tell you this. I have been at churches, and this church is not an exception. I have been at churches where there are devout people who, whether they are in the building or not, make sure that this church and those churches receive their tithe on a regular basis. My second point has to do with the benefits of our giving. The benefits. And in the verses that follow, Paul's going to refer to God's readiness to provide all that is necessary for generosity and reassure those who might worry that they won't have enough that God will provide what they need. So let's look at the text. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you hear that? All, all, all. You may abound in every good work. 
As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. There's that phrase. Increase the harvest of your righteousness. Righteousness by your giving. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will, re will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, another time that he refers to giving as ministry, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, which is the gift, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes not only from your confession of the gospel of Christ, but also the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. I hope you noticed, since I took time to emphasize it, how in verse 11, Paul maintains that generosity will bring a harvest of thanksgiving even to God. You see, the benefits for giving that Paul sketches out uh, are really, I see four of them. First of all, generous giving brings about spiritual riches. Again, Christian giving is not an investment program for earthly material wealth. Paul says quite clearly, God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance. And as I've already noted, secondly, it'll bring thanksgiving to God. Verse 11 is a transitional verse. The first half of the verse summarizes Paul's point in the previous verses. God will provide the means for you to be generous. They have been and they are enriched solely to give them every opportunity to be generous with others. We get so that we can give. Then in the second half of that verse, Paul introduces the theme of thanksgiving by those who receive the gifts. And, and, it's, and it's actually developed more in the second part in verse 12 that giving to others becomes a kind of thank offering to God that multiplies itself. Not only by those who give, receive the gifts, but also by their thanking God for what they've received. Third, the recipients of the gifts will respond by praying for those who gave to them. I don't know about you, but I can tell you this. We have really appreciated and we really appreciate the prayers that have been offered on our behalf over the last several weeks. We've been blessed by them. And Paul says here that the recipients of this giving that's done, those people will pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you as a giver. 
So, fourthly and lastly, Paul says that what they give will advance the well-being and the solidarity of the worldwide Christian community. Our giving, and you can see it any time you want, we're on top of the table. We give to various missions, some of them local, some of them abroad. And as we give, the amount that we give is based on a percentage. So the more that you give in terms of offerings earmarked for missions, the more that we are giving to that worldwide ministry of the church as well. Here's Paul's point. God's lavishly generous. He abundantly supplies us with everything necessary to have enough. Eric was sharing with me yesterday tearfully. Eric wanted to come to my aunt, his great aunt's services in New York. And a man called him that he hadn't spoken to in a long time. I'm not sure that he had spoken to him since we were out there and I know that he went and had coffee with him that morning before we all went to, to Maine to the state park. This man called him and just said, Eric, how you doing? And so Eric shared with him what's happened and how he is hoping that he can attend the funeral services. And shortly thereafter, he received notice on his phone that the man had given him a quite generous gift. Now, was it a coincidence that that man called him yesterday after they hadn't communicated in a long time? You'll never convince me. God supplies. And I find it troubling. I'm I'm a student of humanity. I watch people. And I think that if you watch and listen carefully, you'll notice that most people become miserly in their giving. They hold back or they don't tithe because they're worried that they're not going to have enough for themselves. I can tell you this. There's been times that we didn't know how we were going to make our bills. Even since we've been here. And before church, as I walked by, my wife, she, should, she would say, should I write the check? And I've said, absolutely. The tithe comes first. When Eric and I were talking about his future and his investment programs, I said the only way you are going to be successful is if when you get your check, the first 10% goes to God. The second 10% goes into savings. And then you try to live off the remaining 80%. Otherwise, you're going to have failure. God's part has to come first. And I think that when we don't understand that principle of giving, 
We lose out on those blessings. In fact, verse 13, they, the recipients of your giving, will glorify God because of your submission that comes from where? Your confession of faith, first of all. People are watching you. People are watching how you respond to things. People are watching how you respond to tragedies, to pain, to suffering, to death. That's why Paul could say we grieve, but we don't grieve as people who don't have hope. But then he goes on to say, and it should be a natural, predictable part of our identification as Christians, they will be also glorifying God by the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Paul's very intentional in his use of words or phrases. So when he says all grace, it's because the scope of the blessings is quite broad. Covering the material blessings, but also the spiritual motivation to share them. Try something this week if you've never done it. If you're going through the line at a fast food place, when you order your food and you get up to the window to pay for your food, tell the person, let me pay for the person behind me as well. And pay for their lunch. And if they ask a question to say, a blessing from God, can you do that for me? And they've always said, yeah, they'll do it. We pull on, we get our phone, our food, and we go on. I, I don't know how they feel, but I know how I feel when I leave. I feel good that I've helped somebody. Now, I'll tell you one thing. I was surprised one time when there were 12 people in the car. I didn't see all that. It was one of those three-seaters and there were some players from a ball team. And, but I already I paid for it. But you know what? Over in Watsika one day, it happened to us. We got up to the window and they said, oh, that car over there getting rid of their stuff at the garbage can, they paid for your food. And I didn't make a big point of it, but I did drive over and by and said, thank you. Thank you. I'm a, I'm a student, as I said. And a student of God's Word as well. And so I think that to properly understand the biblical teaching regarding giving, we need to think again about what Paul says. That at all times, God provides us with all that we need. I have never gone without because I gave first what God requires. Now, I did one time eat dried beans and pork chops for almost a week. 
But those were given by a gracious farmer. So here's my conclusion. I want to conclude by looking again at the last verse of this section, verse 15. Paul caps his exhortation to give and and he can scarcely contain himself. Thanks be to God, he says, for His inexpressible gift. He was giving thanks, of course, for the gift of Christ. That's how he started the section back in chapter 8, verse 9. Scholars have noted that this is the first time that that word inexpressible appears anywhere in the Greek language. Are you hearing me? Paul the scholar, top-notch, top-rated scholar, and dutiful student of God's Word could find no way to express the unspeakable, the overwhelming, the inexpressible gift. So he made a word up. A word that says, in effect, that the gift of Christ Jesus can't even be described with words. We can only respond. And how do we respond? By obediently giving. Starting at the baseline. Our tithe. Moving that decimal point over. When that check comes, looking at it, $143, Fourteen dollars and thirty cents. A thousand dollars. A hundred dollars. Just move the decimal point over. That's the baseline. That's God's. We don't give that. We're robbing God. And then, giving our gifts and our offerings beyond that. Giving our time. Giving our talents. Giving our love so that those who believe themselves unworthy and unlovable can experience the love of God through us. Let's pray. Father God, help us to be the stewards that You've called us to be. Giving. So that not only will those that we give to be blessed, but we ourselves will receive the harvest of our righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.